Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Today's episode is a part of The Realignment's daily series covering the big themes that drove 2022. If you're enjoying the daily episodes and would like to support the work the team's putting in this month, go to realignment.supercast.com or check the link at the top of the show notes where you can subscribe for a monthly, yearly, or lifetime membership. Today's episode is focused on democracy, both the fight over its meaning, expansion, and how and why it mattered during the 2022 midterms, where voters, even Republican ones in swing states, didn't support candidates who supported efforts to mess with the results in 2024, or who refused to concede defeat, like Carrie Lake in Arizona, or Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania. I'm speaking with UT Austin professor Jeremy Surrey. Most recently, he's the author of Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy, and The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. He also hosts the This Is Democracy podcast out of UT Austin with his son. Later during this series, I'll explore the democracy question and topic with a guest on the right. All that said, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting the work, and of course to everyone who is pushing me through the daily series. Really excited to do this. It's a huge privilege, and I mean that genuinely. Hope you all enjoy this episode. Jeremy Surrey, welcome to The Realignment. Nice to be with you, Marshall. Glad to speak with you. This, more than a lot of episodes I've done, is definitely one which I'm glad to do a little after the book came out. I believe uh, Civil War by Other Means was released October 18th, um, before the midterms. We're obviously coming out of the midterms. We're going to have a broad conversation about democracy, but this is a good reaction moment. During the 2022 midterms, these things are complicated, but a very clear takeaway is that stop the steal, democracy norm-violating candidates lost to almost a surprising degree in the major battleground states where this could have mattered in 2024. I'd love for you to just give us a reaction, especially in the context of your book, yeah. which is about America's fraught relationship with democracy itself. I, I think what we saw in the midterm is to some extent what we saw in 1868 in the first real election after the Civil War. We have not been through a civil war, but we've been through uh, what uh, courts have now uh, said. It was a seditious conspiracy led by the Oath Keepers and various others to, to lead an insurrection. And I think as in 1868, in the first election after the insurrection, uh, many Americans uh, recognized uh, the danger to democracy that they hadn't seen before. And they rallied not necessarily to Democrats, but they rallied to figures that they believed would be trusted fiduciaries for our democracy. And so I think what we saw was actually uh, a, a devolution toward the middle in many of these elections and a rejection of those who were seen as going beyond what were some basic guideposts and the most basic of those guideposts being, do you believe that uh, the loser of an election should accept that he or she has lost? And I think, as you said, it's most striking that 
state after state, secretaries of state, usually a position we don't pay attention to very much in these elections, those who were running for those positions, which would oversee elections, who were election deniers, they almost universally lost. And I think that's that's a sign of this. That That's what happened in 1868. Ulysses Grant ran for president uh, in the first election after the Civil War, not as a radical Republican at all. He ran as a fiduciary for the country, the person who had helped to hold the country together, who would now help to bring the country together. And he received a lot of votes, obviously, from uh, freed slaves and from Northern Republicans, but even from uh, white Democrats who wanted some sense of stability moving forward. The problem is that that consensus did not hold. And that's the concern we have to have now with former President Trump uh, saying he's going to run again. And I just want to clarify um, two terms for you. So one, obviously, you referred to radical Republicans. We'd love to get a definition of that. And then two, when you referred to not necessarily Democrats, quote unquote, you were referring to people like associating their candidacy with democracy. Um, so you're not referring to the Democratic Party, correct? That's correct. I, I, I think that uh, democracy was uh, a central issue in this midterm election as it was in 1868. In most of my lifetime, democracy has not been the issue on the ballot because we take democracy for granted. One of the reasons I wrote this book is because even as a historian who spent 20 years studying and writing about these issues, I think I had taken democracy too much uh, for, for granted. And so like 1868, this was a midterm election that was about democracy. Uh, radical Republicans, I, I'm glad you asked me to, to, to say a little more about that. That's a term that was commonly used uh, in the decades after the Civil War, uh, both as a positive and a negative. Uh, positively, radical Republicans saw themselves as the advocates of a truly multiracial democracy. They were men and women, often from the North, but many in the South as well, many African-Americans in the South, many Jews in the South, who were ahead of their time. They were civil rights activists. Uh, Thaddeus Stevens, Benjamin Wade, these are figures people might recognize as politicians of the time who were, who were in that mode. The term was also used negatively by uh, Southern Confederates former Confederates who saw the radical and radical Republican as meaning intervening in our lives and doing things they shouldn't do. So it was a term that went both ways. And it's it's important to understand that Ulysses Grant in 1868 was in some sense a kind of Joe Biden figure. The Republican Party was the party uh, of the union and it was the party of civil rights. And he saw himself as the moderate father figure of the country uh, who was going to hold the country together. So I think there is um, a nice parallel between the world of Ulysses Grant and the world of Joe Biden today. I think what's interesting is to your point about folks taking democracy for granted, I think my version of taking democracy for granted is it, it, is, it is a word that especially let's say mid Obama 2010s is it doesn't mean anything. It's the Star Spangled Banner. It's the Battle Hymn of the Republic. It's the Constitution. It's the Declaration of Independence. It's, it's a word that people know matters, but the, the, the definitions and the significance don't really matter here. What would you say are the baselines for democratic practice? Obviously, accepting election results is a baseline, but what are other examples? Because we're going to debate democracy as a country basically forever. But what's a baseline that we should all agree on? Well, as you probably know, Marshall, uh, I'm a huge fan of Abraham Lincoln, the father of the Republican Party, the, in many ways, the leader of the second American Revolution. 
And he nails this uh, definition in the Gettysburg Address, which is still uh, the greatest speech in American history. Lincoln actually had only two years of college, two years of education, no college education. And he wrote two of the five best speeches in our history, which is extraordinary. Uh, Gettysburg Address, he, he nails it. Democracy is government of the people, by the people, for the people. Government of the people, by the people, for the people. That doesn't mean that majority always gets its way. Notice he doesn't say it's government of the majority. Government of the people, by the people, for the people. So what does that mean? It means that the decisions, the power, the resources of government should be driven by the interests and the consent of the people in all ways. Now, there are multiple forms of coming to consent. I think the two key baseline ways in which we do this, one is through elections. And another is through a Bill of Rights. Those are the two cornerstones of our democracy. So even if the majority of Americans don't like what I'm saying, I have, thanks to the First Amendment, free speech. And I'm I'm a near absolutist on free speech. I think that's a cornerstone of democracy, as is freedom of religion. No one can tell me what to say. No one can tell me whom I should worship. Uh, That's a cornerstone. So we have rights that we build as a framework. And then within the framework of those rights, then we have elections and majority consent. And I think the tension, the creative tension in democracy is what should be a right and what should be subject to majority consent. And that's a healthy tension. But that's where that's where the decision making should should occur. Yeah, I was going to kind of move ahead in the script here. I was going to ask you about this. So on one of your uh, podcast episodes of your son, you're referring to, you know, the fact that you are um, pro-choice um, and I'm, you were kind of lamenting the, the rollback of, of abortion rights in, in particularly red states. But there have also been referendums around abortion rights. And I'm curious how you think about those referendums. Like, what, what do you think about the idea of like a referendum, like a vote over, like, let's say, a topic like that? What about a gay marriage refer- referendum? The tension between, once again, individual rights and then majority of democracy. Right. And and I think that's a fair debate. My point of view would, does not have to be everyone's point of view. This is now an opinion. I, I, you know, I like to distinguish my scholarly research from my opinions. Right. So this is just my my opinion as someone who loves John Stuart Mill. Uh, my, my opinion is that uh, you should be able uh, you should have rights to protect what you do with your body and what you do with your life insofar as it doesn't affect other major groups of citizens within society. So I do think my daughter, who's 20 years old, should get to decide what she does with her body. She doesn't have to even listen to me. Um, and I don't think that should be subjected to a referendum. But I do think um, what taxes she pays should be subjected to, to a referendum. Uh, you think so referendums I think, are yeah. effective? As a, I, I'm, from or, I'm from Oregon originally, so I, I've been subject to the, the pluses and minuses of the referendum system. I think within reason, um, we have a lot of referenda as, as you've probably learned in Austin, Texas also. And what I have found is often the referenda are written to be uh, impenetrable and people don't know actually what they're voting for. And they were just a way of actually uh, sneaking things in. Uh, I think in principle, a referendum on a key issue makes a lot of sense because often you have institutional barriers to actually getting through to the will of the people. Campaign finance reform is the classic example of this, right? We should not be surprised that neither Democrats nor Republicans support real campaign finance reform because those who are elected have benefited from the current system. Why would they want to to undermine the current system? So that's an issue where I think a referendum makes makes a lot of sense. Um, but I think referendums should be used sparingly and they should be used for big issues. I don't like the idea of our having a referendum on a school board bond where no one understands what the bond is about and most people don't understand how the financing for bonds works. That doesn't seem to make any sense to me. 
Okay, that's fair. Something I'm very, very, very curious about, um, and you're going to correct me on the history here. I'm going to make an assumption. I tried to like pre-write this question, but it's not going to come out well. So just correct me. When you are talking about reforms you would like to see to American democracy, um, changing the composition of the Senate when it comes to the fact that Wyoming, a small state, has just as much representation in the Senate as California. Therefore, there's a tension with democratic representation of the country. Talking about D.C. and Puerto Rico, obviously, in the case of D.C., Puerto Rico, and then California relative to Wyoming, there is like a racial implication to those three states mentioned. California obviously is far more of a diverse state than Wyoming. Therefore, white rural voters in Wyoming, apologies for making assumptions about Wyoming and the listeners we have there, are going to be like wider, older, not quite reflecting the country. Um, DC, obviously a, a minority majority state, and then Puerto Rico, um, a black and brown territory without um, many of the rights that other states have, obviously. However, there are also non-racial reasons, non-racial issues that the admittance and the changes of those policies um, would result in, that would make, I think, a Republican kind of blanch. So I, for example, know Republicans who said, oh, I wouldn't want to admit D.C. and Puerto Rico as states, not because, you know, I am afraid of admitting black and brown people um, to the Senate, um, but because that's obviously going to push the needle on, let's say, an issue like universal health care, but they just believe because they're classical liberals, whatever, whatever, whatever. In the past, however, I'm curious if other debates about expanding America's conception of its democracy have also had awkward realities where there's this obvious argument, let's say, explaining the rights of black people, did like civil service reform in the 1870s and 1880s, was that issue affected by the expansion of democratic rights in a way that, let's say, a critic of expansion of democracy could have said, hey, I'm not like a racist, but I'm really concerned with these big issues being adjusted. Sorry that was so long. I just want to be very precise yeah. with what I'm trying to say yeah. here. I, it's a fantastic question. And, you know, I've done tons of interviews on this and you're the first to really ask me that question. It's fantastic. Um, yes, I think this has always been at the center. One of the points of my book is that um, certainly before the Civil War, but certainly si since the Civil War, the period I cover in my book, these issues have always been wrapped together. And we have to recognize that and reconcile that. So civil service reform is a great example uh, of this. One of the reasons why there was such opposition to civil service reform was not because people were opposed to the idea of having literate people in the civil service. It was because they wanted their people in the civil service. And there was concern. It's, it's perfectly symmetrical to some of the debates we have today. There was concern when in the administration of Benjamin Harrison, civil service reform, reform was first passed. There was concern that it was not just going to be a more diverse group. The real concern was that it was going to be a more highly educated group that was urbanized and that rural citizens would not be represented in the institutions of government in the same way. And that that would have policy implications for the ways our work was done. So many of those who opposed civil service reform were concerned we were going to have imperialists in the civil service, that we were going to have New York lawyers uh, encouraging us to use our resources in the Philippines and Cuba rather than using them in the Midwest and in the South and elsewhere. So these issues have, have been wrapped together since Appomattox. Issues of race, 
and the substance of policy and who's included and who's not included. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, Marshall. I think we just need to acknowledge that. Uh, and so when we're having a debate about D.C. statehood, it should not just be a debate about race. That's obviously one of the front and center issues. But but it should also be uh, a, a debate about uh, the policy issues that are necessary for that part of the country that are addressed or are not addressed with D.C. statehood. I think it's as much about having a functioning city in D.C. You and I have spent time in D.C. It's a city that doesn't function very well because it's under Congress. And look what happened on January 6th. It was much harder to move in National Guard units than it would have been if a similar group had attacked the state capitol in Austin or in Sacramento, where the there's a governor who would have the authority to call in the National Guard, which is exactly what any governor would have done. No one can do that in D.C. <laughs> they have to wait for Congress and for presidential approval. So so my, my point is just to, to lean into your question to say that let's recognize that issues of race and other economic, social, political issues that are not about race have always been wrapped together when we talk about expanding our institutions. Uh, and let's let's lean into that. Let's be honest about it and have a fuller debate that takes into account all of those. So I don't want it just to be about race, but I don't want us to pretend it isn't about race either. Something I'm curious about, I'm curious about your theory of the case when it comes to democratic change. So for example, the reason why the Homestead Act passes during, you know, the 1860s during the Civil War is that the small government Southern Democrats are no longer part of Congress because they've seceded. The reason why you have the expansion of, once again, like African-American rights is that the Civil War happened. Uh, you know, you have the progressive movement during the, you know, 19, early 1900s that really forces America to like reapproach questions of democracy philosophically. That's why you have obviously like the um, direct election of senators, the expansion of women's, uh, the women's right to vote, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everything that you've kind of advocated for, whether it's the case of the reconfiguring the Senate, admitting new states, like that would require a sea change from the status quo, um, philosophically, um, at a pure, almost like electoral basis. What's your theory of how you would get to there, given the uh, context today? Your question is perfect because it, it's the predicate for my answer, which is that uh, big changes have never been bipartisan in the way we think about bipartisanship. There, there isn't this moment. I, I wrote a piece about this in The Times a couple of weeks ago, too, building on my book, right? There isn't this moment when all Americans held hands and said, oh, we're all going to make this big change together. I, I think maybe we had two days like that after 9-11, right? <laughs> and then we went back to partisanship. We have always been, this is James Madison 101 on our government, right? We have always been a big, diverse, factionalized society. And the whole point of the Federalist Papers was to say we can build a democracy with factions using pluralism, using checks and balances. So to get big change is really hard. Our system is not built for it. It's built against big change. We're, we're an anti-revolutionary, revolutionary system. Yeah. Um, so how does this happen? I think this happens when you have a combination of leadership and groups mobilized who don't necessarily like each other, but see a common interest in getting something done. And so to, to give an example on this, I think the, the work that Lyndon Johnson does to get the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, there is no consensus. But he is able brilliantly to bring together different factions within his own Democratic Party 
and a few within the Republican Party for very different reasons, right? So there are Southern Democrats who are still racists, don't believe in equality, but they are now deeply embarrassed and concerned about the economic consequences for their part of the country if they don't get on board. So he makes an economic argument and he offers them money, right? He throws money out of the limousine at them to get them on board. Then you have very progressives who want to do much more than Lyndon Johnson's offering, but see this as the best they're going to get. Then you have liberal Republicans, right? Who are trying to make a name for themselves that they're not Barry Goldwater. They want to separate themselves from the John Birchers. And so Johnson put together a coalition. 1964, 1965 is not the end of racism. It's not a civil rights consensus. It's political leadership that builds a coalition. Lincoln does the same thing. Even though the Southern Democrats are not in Congress any longer, he still has abolitionists and non-abolitionists within the Republican Party. And so what I think we need in a democracy is we need an issue that mobilizes people and the leadership that brings people together, even though they differ on the details of where they stand, to see some common ground at that moment. It's, it's coalition government is what, what I think we need. And uh, here's a question that you've obviously thought about because you've written a book on the topic. Like, where does political talent come in to this equation? So we're talking about LBJ, we're talking about Joe Biden. Like, How do you think about this? I think talent is absolutely crucial. The, the ability to be politically effective is very different from being the smartest in the room. Uh, Lincoln happens to be both, <laughs> but, but there, there are differences. And one of the points I make in the book that I came to in the research is that actually our system is often not good at electing leadership that has the right talents. Uh, we have that with Lincoln, but between Lincoln and TR, uh, most people can't even name most of those presidents for good reason. Because they were duds. <laughs> you know, someone, uh, Ulysses Grant, Rutherford B. Hayes, James Garfield, all covered in my book. They're, you know, they're good men. Rutherford B. Hayes is a very good man, but he has no political skills. He doesn't have the ability to get people with different points of view to work together. Ulysses Grant did not have those skills either. What are the skills we're talking about? It's the ability to um, move people and not just do fancy speeches, but to. So it's not the West Wing. It's the, not the West Wing. The West Wing theory of government isn't effective here. <laughs> no, no, nor is it what um, people caricature Ronald Reagan as, you know, just speaking to the public over the heads of Congress. Yeah, that's some of it. But actually, when Reagan got things done, it was a hard-nosed negotiation with Tip O'Neill uh, from the Democratic side. It is the ability to figure out what other people who have very different points of view, what they want, and find a way to make what they want what you want. It's negotiation, it's coercion, it's cajoling, it's persuading, it's very personal based, it's very relationship based, it's very psychological. Uh, and it's a set of skills that I think one only learns in the doing. Uh, how did Lincoln learn to be a great politician? That actually became his job as a, as a lawyer traveling through Illinois, right? What was he really doing as a lawyer? He was winning over juries, right? He tried more cases before juries than almost any other lawyer in Illinois in his time. What did Lyndon Johnson do as a politician? He went around Texas and convinced people to vote for him, right? I mean, that those skills, I think, are, are so important. We overrate, I think, the public speaking, as important as it is. We underrate the ability to work interpersonally to move people to your position. Here's another question then. What do you think about the insider, outsider, debate around politicians, especially at the presidential level, because the funny thing about your articulation of LBJ's skill set is let's pretend we don't have thinking brains and just can read things on paper. 
there's an argument for like, actually, I'll put it this way. Like, let's pretend that like Trump's articulation of himself as a deal maker is actually like real. That's that's an argument for at least like Trump's experience or Trump's kind of like narrative or framing there. So I guess it's kind of like an unfair question because that would suggest that Trump like was that deal maker negotiator. But what I basically kind of kind of get at basically is how do you just think about insiders versus outsiders in yeah, terms of yeah. the effectiveness? So what we what one needs, uh, and I, I it is something I talk about in this book. I talked about a lot in, in the book I wrote on Henry Kissinger years ago. You know, I think you need a bit of both, uh, and maybe that's just a wishy washy answer, but I think it's the correct answer. So you need to understand how the game is played. And every game is different. The game of politics is different from the game of business. And so I don't think just because you are a successful businessman or business person that you can transfer those skills uh, directly. Politics is its own system, its own strange system, American politics in particular, congressional politics, if that's what we're talking about. And you need to understand how that works. And you don't understand it from the outside. You have to be inside. You have to have what the Germans call the Spielingerfuhl. You have to be able to feel it, right? Um, but you also have to have ideas from the outside. You can't be of a creature of the system to some extent that you're just playing the game the way it's always been played. So the, the analogy I use is the best managers in any sport are those who have played the sport, but also done something else. So they bring some other vision to it, right? Uh, it's a sort of the A's and what Michael Lewis writes about, right? Bringing a new mathematical approach to the game, but understanding the game. So you need, you need both of those things. And, and our system should work for that because we're a big country. So I'm for bringing people from outside Washington to Washington but people who have had experience outside Washington in other political settings, not those who have never been involved in politics. That never seems to work. Um, in general, our um, military leaders are not great political leaders for this reason. Not that they aren't great people, but you know, running the military is very different from running politics. So two unrelated question follow-ups then. So number one, and I'm not saying this to your point, like there's a separation between like our opinions and like the, the analysis analysis would show, I think, that Joe Biden has had an effective two years of his presidency in the sense that uh, a very successful midterm result, he's passed a lot. Um, he's weirdly enough improved his standing relative to things were in the low point. This isn't Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, I'm comparing him to his Democratic Party predecessors, but Joe Biden is the definition of a man who is A, literally not done anything else, been a politician his entire life, and B, to your point about bringing something from the outside, Joe Biden is also the opposite of that too. Like Joe Biden's yeah. career is defined by being able to place himself like exactly within like the center of where the mainstream of the Democratic Party is. So why would he be effective given he kind of is a weird repudiation of your framework for effectiveness? Yeah, I, I think he's effective on the one ha hand because he has this insider knowledge and because he knows how the system works and he has relationships. I mean, the, the, you know, the thing people forget is he, he and Mitch McConnell actually like each other. They've worked <laughs> together for years, right? And I think that's really valuable, right? The leader of the opposition should be someone you can work, work with. I think he gets along with Joe Manchin despite their differences quite, quite often. So I think those are his strengths, but I think his weakness has not just been that he doesn't often have ideas from the outside, it's that he he sometimes cannot speak to people outside the system. His inarticulateness is not simply a problem with his speaking style and with, with his stutter, but it's actually also that he's been inside the game perhaps too long. 
So he has trouble explaining what he's doing. This is my deepest frustration with President Biden. He has accomplished many things. We can agree or disagree whether he's a good president or not. That's an opinion point. But analytically, he has passed more significant legislation than the two prior presidents passed. In two years, he's done more than they did in their first four years. That's just a fact in terms of legislation. But he's terrible at bragging about it. You and I know those are the facts, but most educated Americans don't. He's terrible. And, even, it's, yeah. and to be precise, yeah. your point is, even if you take like 1990s Joe Biden, right? So just age him down. You think he still would lack the ability to take the win, articulate, do those things because of the insider experience? I th- I do. Yeah. I think that Barack Obama's strength was he was far less good at the inside game. <laughs> but he knew he knew how to tell the public, to tell a story. And you think about the ways in which Obama connected with black and brown voters. uh, And then you think about the ways in which Biden has trouble, even though you could argue Biden legislatively has done more. But how hard it is for him to tell that. And I don't think it's because just because Biden is white and Barack Obama was black, because Obama knew how to tell that story in a cadence, in a tone that ordinary people understood. Biden doesn't. He sounds like a policy wonk. When he's when he's talking about these issues, and I think uh, that makes it harder to communicate to people. That's a communication problem that he has. It's also devastating because Biden is also not a policy wonk at an interpersonal level. So if you don't bring the strengths of being a policy wonk with the weaknesses of a policy wonk, that's not a great combination. <laughs> I okay, agree so with that. <laughs> other other follow up then though. So you said military leaders tend not to be good at politics, but obvious counter. President Eisenhower. Yes, um, yes, I, yes. Would my my thesis, taking your your viewpoint seriously, would probably be that the specific mood of the country combined with the specific issues, aka like early Cold War decolonization period. Do you go to Dien Bien Phu or not? Like those were questions that he person Korean War. They perfectly matched his military experience. Therefore, he did not run into some of the challenges that let's say. A, a a Colin Powell would been if Colin Powell had tried to be president in two thousand. Right, I, I think that's true, and and there always are when, when you articulate a general rule, there always are the exceptions for the exceptional <laughs> so people. I'm cheating. Apologies and, and, for that. <laughs> yeah, and that's Dwight Eisenhower. But but also, I'll, I'll make another point though. Um, World War II was such a unique experience. The entire country was at war, and and Dwight Eisenhower, along with Franklin Roosevelt and George Marshall, was running the war. So he developed a a degree of political experience having to deal with yeah, yeah, yeah. non-military issues as supreme allied commander that most generals most people at his level don't don't have experience with that is such a good point that i'd never really thought of in the sense that and this is okay so the perfect counter to this too is you know back in the the 2000s um post surge there was a lot of excitement on the right for maybe david Petraeus to run for for president and david Petraeus. Very, very smart guy, has the PhD from Princeton, all that good stuff. But the point is, is that in putting aside people's views on the Iraq war and David Petraeus's, you know, uh, extramarital affair, the specific experience of being commander of American forces during the surge is not the whole of society political infighting experience that managing the logistics and more and to your point, multinational um, embarking that World War II was. Correct. Correct. I think that's exactly. I mean, it, the way to think about it is someone like Petraeus, who I have a, a high, very high regard for, as you do. Um, he spent his entire career in a very hierarchical organization where people follow orders. 
And as, as you and I know, that's exactly not how politics works, <laughs> right? The smallest town mayor will, will, will resist the, the, the person at the top of the political food chain, right? In a way that a colonel will never resist a general. So I think the next question is, I would love for you to explain, so two, two actually three things. Um, so three, three interrelated questions. So I would love for you to basically explain just like the fundamental political limiting factor and basically like these three eras, actually four eras of basically democratic reform. So um, post-1865, like reconstruction, like what's the limiting factor? Um, progressive era, um, direct election of senators, women's rights to vote, what's the limiting factor? Um, civil rights era, what's the limiting factor? And then I'd say today, the various obvious one is like a lack of institutional trust. So a Republican is going to say, Jeremy, you can articulate for me all the different ways that like vote by mail is democratic and fair. I don't care. You sound like a Democrat. I don't trust you. That's right. the limiting factor today. What would be the equivalence during these previous eras of democratic change? Great question. So I, I would say after the Civil War, the biggest limiting factor is, and it's something we need to empathize with, not sympathize with, but empathize with, is the fact that um, those white landholders and slaveholders in the South were losing a lot. They were facing steep downward mobility. And it's very hard in a democracy to get people to give up so much property and be happy about it and accept that. Right? This is Machiavelli, right? What does Machiavelli say? People forget the death of a father sooner than the loss of their patrimony. <laughs> uh, and, and that's what's happening here, right? Slaves were the single largest source of investment for Southerners. They were what homes are to Americans today, right? Most Americans have their largest investment of income in their home. Um, this was slaves. And, the, and, and they went almost overnight from being property to being citizens, as they should have. But that, that created downward mobility. And this is a point Richard Hofstadter made decades ago. In American democracy, when a group faces downward mobility, they violently resist. And they have many avenues to do that. So that's, that's the limiting factor. There was a lot for very powerful people to lose very quickly, and that was hard. Um, in the progressive era, I think one of the biggest uh, limiting uh, factors there was that um, the federal government did not have the mechanisms. It was a very under-institutionalized government at the time. And so it was very difficult to implement what were a slew of often Republican-led innovative policies in states like Wisconsin and Texas and Georgia, and the states were doing all kinds of innovative things. It's the moment when states are the laboratories of democracy, which is how the system should work. But it was very hard to bring that together because there wasn't a, a federal institutional structure. When I teach about the progressive era, I, I show students this is the moment that we begin to develop. It's the moment we have an income tax for the first time. It's the moment we have a federal law enforcement, right, the FBI comes into existence then. So we just don't have, we're under-institutionalized. Many, many, many might argue we're over-institutionalized today. We're under-institutionalized in the early 20th century. And then with the civil rights movement and that period, I, I think the biggest impediment is that Americans are over-committed in too many places. I do think the image of Johnson is trying to do too much is accurate. Um, it's not just the Vietnam War. I mean, they're, they're, we're in our moment of greatest hubris in the 1950s and 60s, we're trying to do everything. We're trying to defend the world against communism and racism at home and poverty. Uh, we're beginning to talk about in the environment, all these we're going things. Going to the, the moon, same. all we're these going, things. Right. And so we're, we're it, it's the, the Johnson is 
is that era is the era of Greek tragedy, right? When, when we're just overcommitted in too many places. And the most sensible thing that happens in the 70s is that we try to scale back a little bit uh, our ambitions. So I think the next question would be, what would you, what would be your prescription for operating in, in a zero trust society? At, at a, so at, 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 a, at almost a, at almost like at a political level, because it seems that it seems unclear how you square that circle. And let me, let me make one more point clear too, because to your point, these these radical changes have rarely been bipartisan. But another defining right. era of this moment in, in American politics is the inability to form stable long term majorities. So. Lyndon Johnson doesn't bring in the great, just like advance civil rights in the great society because he wins in 64. It's because there's been a long-standing, built-up FDR, LBJ, Kennedy, LBJ, Democratic Party that's just actually governing for the majority of the country. Biden can't sustain that for more than two years. How do you navigate this? So I think you have to find uh, issues where you can deliver results to people immediately and show them those results. Um, and, and I think where that works, where we see that is with things like social security, right? I mean, everyone's for social security, which, which was, let's be frank, right? A, a kind of socialist idea in the 1930s. And now everyone is for it. Everyone's for, um, Medicare, right? Even though that's Lyndon Johnson, great. I love the people who oppose the great society, but want their Medicare, uh, coverage, right? Um, so uh, I think Obama had the right idea. He didn't execute properly, right? But getting people better health insurance, uh, getting people the COVID aid that they were given, uh, finding ways right now, finding ways to do things to help people with the inflationary pressures. One of the biggest issues in the elections that didn't go well for the Democrats, this issue did not, was the economy. Most people gave the Republicans greater credit on the economy. Uh, I think it's, it's imperative for Biden to find some issues where he can build a small coalition and show results and then tell people about those results. So it's not trust me because uh, I'm doing the right thing. Trust me, because you see and feel the effects uh, right now. And, and so I think it's, it's retail politics. It's being able to do that. People feel government is too distant from them right now. Government has to be brought to them, and they have to see the benefits from that in their lives. Something I'm wondering about are the, let's say, let's put aside, you know, Carrie Lake um, election denial and work at, I think, the more understandable critiques of, like, let's say, the status quo, especially from the right what do you say to, let's say, like Republican voters who are asking questions like, hey, like, why is, why are elections like taking a month now? Um, why is there now vote by mail? Um, why aren't we um, returning results quicker than we are? Because I think growing up in Oregon, we were just a vote by mail state. Um, so I came to Austin and I voted here. Um, and I waited in line for an hour. And I think that just made me deeply empathetic to people who experience really quickly, as folks did after COVID, just jarringly different systems of elections. Like, what, what, what would you say to Republican voters? And then what would you say to, let's say, politicians who are supposed to represent them who are forced to bring this all together into some sort of coherent package? Well, I think uh, I, one thing we could do, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult question, right? Because our elections, as I show in my book, have always been this way. Our elections have always been messy. Our system, our election system has never really worked well. That's part of the problem. Uh, and, and I could 
go on a rant about how voting by mail is actually the most secure and it's been done since the Civil War when soldiers voted. The reason we created voting by mail was for soldiers who were serving their country to be able to vote. Who would want to stop them from voting? Um, but I think the real point is that we should have a discussion and I think we could build a consensus around creating a more federalized system for voting with secure uh, federal management of this in a way that could actually build trust. When I say federal, I don't mean the White House running elections. I mean doing what we do to keep our airplanes safe. When you and I fly uh, Southwest, it's not that we feel safe because we trust Southwest. I don't trust Southwest. You probably don't either, right? I trust the National Transportation Safety Board. I trust the FAA and I don't even trust them 100 percent, but I, I feel comfortable enough knowing that they have very rigorous safety protocols that enforce safety so that my flight with Southwest will be will be safe. We need to create that kind of entity, which almost every other democracy has to manage our elections and then create standards. And we can have a debate over what those standards should be. Maybe we should have mail in voting. Maybe we shouldn't, whatever. And those standards can also allow for some flexibility for rural versus versus urban. But the problem is that we have not even state run elections. That's wrong. We have county run elections. And so when you vote in Travis County in in Austin, it's different from how you vote in Williamson County. And and if you move from Williamson to Travis County, you think you're voting the same way. You're voting in a, a totally different way. That's confusing to people. It gives a lot of power to locally elected clerks, election clerks, who often aren't people we know very well who aren't necessarily qualified for those jobs. Many of them work super hard too. I'm not trying to, to insult them here. Um, but I think a system that does what we've done for everything else we care about, that creates federal standards and enforcement of those standards is where we should go. And I don't think that has to be a democratic position. I think that could address the concerns that Republicans have. I, I also think, by the way, we need to, to establish a standard that we're going to make voting as easy as possible for people. That's where I think Republicans have to move a little bit on this issue. Our goal should be to make it as easy as possible for everyone to vote. Of course, it has to be secure. Let's start then with making it a federal holiday. Mm -hmm. And that'd right? be, uh, and I think that's a good example of a, a federal, because to, to your point, um, that's a good example of like a federal role in an election that's purely neutral. Correct. Uh, but that, that there's no, it's, there's no creeping actuated advantages dem Democrats. And it turns out that, you know, Democrats um, love holidays and Republicans <laughs> love working through the day. So this is, an, that's, that's a, okay, that's a, that's a good starting point. I mean, yeah. actually here's a question, like why isn't that true already? That seems so, I, whenever something seems obvious, my first question is, okay, then why is it happening? It's like Chesterton, it's the Chesterton's fence equivalent. And space. so it's 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 a point I, I make in the book, and it's initially the fault of the Democrats. Our system has been designed to make it harder for people to vote. So there's no federal holiday in the 19th century. The Re Republicans do talk about it because Southern Democrats don't want it. They want poor whites and blacks and Jews and others not to be able to vote. And then uh, when this was proposed, in fact, by Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats in the last few years, it's been opposed by the Republicans in Congress now. So historically, one side or the other has opposed it. It's not you can't just blame one party. More recently, it's been it's been Republicans. Uh, it's been proposed in Texas, and the governor of Texas has, has opposed this. Right, the Texas could create a state holiday. We mm -hmm. used to have Confederates Day as a state. It's I think it still is a holiday. Actually, Confederate uh, Day is a holiday in Texas for state workers. We could make Voting Day, uh, but uh, the governor has opposed that. Yeah, the uh, and, and I think. I, I think it's because some people don't want to make it easier to vote. 
Yeah, there's a, a, I spoke with some election uh, reformers and I think the useful phrase and help kind of crystallize this issue with me was like, the question is like, should our political system be more or less responsive? Um, and you make it easier to vote. You have a federal holiday, but putting aside like the specific debates around how many days before, like how early do you request about just at a basic level, the holiday would make the system more responsive. And totally. I think to next, well, here's a question though. Do you think a more responsive system is a means for addressing the trust issue? Or is this all just too abstract? No, I think it is. Um, I think a more responsive system uh, tells people uh, that their voice is desired, <laughs> that uh, we want them to vote, right? Um, one of the reasons we shop online is because it's easier than going to the store, right? If we make voting easier, uh, we're sending a message that we want you as the consumer, as the voter. We care about you. We care about your time. You shouldn't have to wait an hour in line. That's uh, you, you, when you say that, Marshall. That may, that that hurts me. That <laughs> that here in Austin, because I know my students were standing in line, and I know the longer my students have to stand in line, the more likely they are to be on their phones and go somewhere else. <laughs> and so we shouldn't. I don't ask them to stand in line before they come into a lecture. They won't wait, <laughs> right? So it's a sign of respect. And so I do think you start there and you start to build. Respect and through respect comes trust. So uh, for this last section, I want to take an entirely different um, tack. Um, you wrote a, a great op-ed um, for, for CNN with uh, William Imboden, who was a guest on the show a few weeks ago to talk about his new book on Reagan. And you were talking about the the recent spate of, of deaths of like the really iconic 20th century leaders. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev obviously is the um, most recent, but you could think of, you know, George H.W. Bush and, and, a, and a variety of, of, of German leaders who I, I just entirely forget. Uh, call, call, Con, Conrad Adenauer, um, he's, he, was he already, I, I, this is disrespectful, was he already, had he already passed away? Yes. Yeah. Was, was I just? Yeah. I was just. I was searching West German prime ministers um, for for a hundred dollars. Helmut Kohl. I think you're Helmut, thinking of Helmut there, Kohl. There, there, Helmut there we go. Um, um, so the question here is, um, I would love for you to basically just to sort of articulate kind of the, the sentiment of the piece, which was you know a generation of leaders who really navigated the post World War II. How did the Cold War era effectively was put aside some of the specific questions they may have gotten wrong, but the broad, the broad question, are we going to move on from World War II? Is there going to be nuclear war? They got it right. Yeah. Yeah. How confident are you in coming generations, especially as a um, university professor, uh, that by coming generations, like let's say my like middle stage millennial generation, or even the Gen Zs um, are going to be able to meet like similar challenges? So I'm glad you brought it, brought this up, and and uh, Will Inboard and I are close friends, and we've it's been wonderful to work together, and we come from different political points of view. So I hope we embody this this sort of commitment to bringing different points of view to, together, and I hope everyone will read his book on Reagan. It's been so fun for me to be writing my book and he to be writing his Reagan book at the same time. Um, I, I have a lot of confidence in my students. Uh, maybe I'm biased because they're my students, but what I see in the classroom today. Uh, these students are better, better than ever. Uh, my wife and I, and Will, all of us were at Stanford together as undergrads. We're, Will and I are the same age. And I always tell my wife, uh, my students today are better than we were at Stanford uh, in the early 90s. My wife usually responds and says, yeah, they're better than you and Will, not better than she was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why are they better? Because um, they're coming of age in a time of uh, difficulty. Uh, 
And I think uh, when you come of age in a time of difficulty, you don't take things for granted. It's easier for me to get them to work hard, believe it or not. It's easier for me to get them to read books than it was 10 years ago. Because what I do is I stand up there with my authority and I say, if you don't do this, you're not going to get a job. (laughs) And they respond. Uh, And they care about their country and they're worried and they don't think their parents have the answer. They want to find the answers themselves. That generation that I revere, uh, that you refer to, the generation of the Mikhail Gorbachevs, the George H.W. Bushes, the Conrad Adenauers, that that post-World War II generation, and let's carry it, you know, over 20, 30 years, they had a lot of limitations, particularly on some of the social, cultural, racial issues. Uh, But they understood that politics was a serious business, and they believed deeply in basic democratic decency. Isn't that what stands out about a George H.W. Bush and a Ronald Reagan? I mean, let me, let me be frank. Will and I have talked about this a lot. I, there are a lot of policy issues I differ with Ronald Reagan on. And I don't think Ronald Reagan won the Cold War. But I will say this. The behavior we've seen from some politicians in the last 10 years, I can't imagine that from Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan believed in the sanctity of elections. He believed that politics was about making people's lives better, not enriching yourself. Uh, as far as I can tell, he did not enrich himself as a politician. He did not give business to his uh, family members as a politician. Uh, he believed that politics was a serious business. There was something called statesmanship. I think that's what, what drove Mikhail Gorbachev. I think that was lost on the generation that followed. There's a kind of selfishness, self-interestedness, cynicism about politics that I see too common. I see more idealism in young people because they see that as the only salvation now. I think it's our job as professors. I'm not sure we're doing a good enough job. It's our job to give them the skills, the knowledge, from my point of view, the historical models. I want them to study these great leaders, not because they're going to be the same. You know, I want my Latina students to study Ronald Reagan and Conrad Adenauer, people who look so different, so they can find those attributes in their own voice and bring that to, to politics today. I think we have the tools more than any other society, more than any peer society. I wouldn't trade our young people for those in any other society. I think we just have to double down on serious historical education. And that's why I close uh, my new book that way. I close Civil War by other means by making the point we need to teach people the full history of our country. It's the most patriotic act for people to understand the limitations as well as the strengths of what we did after the Civil War. Not to condemn the past or condemn our country. I love our country. But so this new generation can be better informed and capable to correct the mistakes of their fathers and grandfathers. So I think the the last question, speaking of, of countries, uh, I started before we recorded um, really praising um, the podcast that you host um, with your son. I'll include Thank a link you. in the show notes, of course. But uh, you, I had a quick quibble question. Yeah. You two were speaking about um, post-World War II Germany as a, as a model for um, the United States of reckoning with, with history. And I think the kind of reaction I had, like putting aside the reckoning the Germans have obviously done, is like, you know, that was after two back-to-back world wars. That was after, like, the idea of Prussia is, like, literally wiped off. Like, so militarism. It's more complicated than I know, but, like, the idea of this entity within Germany is so militaristic and bad, we're going to abolish it and change their conception. They're occupied by the United States and by the Soviet Union, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not to say that Germany hasn't reckoned with its history. It's to say that the circumstances and the challenges seem so different. But I'm curious what 
of use beyond the obvious of, wow, we did bad things. We should think about those bad things. Like, what is the actual comparison that you find useful in thinking of World War II Germany? Thanks. It's a, it's a great question, and it's something when I do book talks, I try to focus on because I do think it's it's the key issue. It's why I wrote this book, uh, and I'm inspired in particular. And I think we mentioned this on the show by the work of Susan Nyman. She wrote a book called Learning from the Germans. She's a philosopher from Georgia, who's uh, I, who's you know world class philosopher. lived in Israel. Now she lives in Germany, and she writes about these issues. The German term is Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, learning or working through the past. What does that mean? Um, I don't think it means condemning your ancestors. That's the wrong way to think about it. And it don't, doesn't mean uh, superficial political correctness saying, look, we're better than uh, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, no one's better than Thomas Jefferson, right? It's not that at all. Uh, what working through your history is, is what I try to do in this book, right? It's trying to go to the facts to stare the facts in the face. And most historical periods have their things we should be proud of. I am so proud of the Northern Republicans and the work that Lincoln does, the heroism. Uh, incredibly proud, as I write about in the book, of African-American soldiers who join the Union Army, slaves who flee the plantations, join the Union Army, become literate, and then business people, successful business people within a decade. Think of that transformation. That's the American dream. You want to talk about the American dream in this period? It's that. That's what my immigrant ancestors came here for, too, right? So uh, there's the good, but there's also the bad, right? <laughs> there's the, the massacring, the paramilitary violence, the lynching, the vigilante. Antiism, uh, the voter exclusion. I think working through your history is staring it in the face, going as deeply as you can to get to the facts, and then asking yourself how those legacies have seeped into your own time and how you can take action to escape the negative legacies and accentuate the positive ones, which is what we all do in our families, right? We all have families with skeletons in the closet. We don't ignore it. We learn about it and we try to get it out of us, right? Uh, oftentimes something will come out of my mouth. I say to my kids and I realize, oh my gosh, that's what my father said to me. And I hated it when he said that. I've got to stop saying that, right? <laughs> and, and so that's what it is. And what, what do I see in our society today? Unlike in Germany, we have not really reconciled, particularly in places like Texas, the legacies of the Civil War especially some of the negative legacies. We've intentionally ignored them. It doesn't make us a bad society. It doesn't make us racist. But we've got to work to get those out of our system. The most obvious one, right? Naming of things. I'm a Jew, right? I'm not going to send my kids to Joseph Goebbels High School. I'm not going to send them to uh, Hermann Goering University. Why should we expect uh, African-American students and Latino students to go to a Robert E. Lee or Jeff Davis School? You can still have a mixed view of those figures, but isn't it deeply disrespectful? And then you look at why those names were put on those schools. It was intentionally put on by Jim Crow leaders for that reason. Why were our military bases named after Confederates? Uh, those were Jim Crow leaders in the South who insisted on that. So that's just one place in many. And names matter, don't they? Uh, what we call things says what we respect. Uh, and so I, I, that's what I think we need. That's working through your history. It's trying to understand how elements of the past that are different from who you are have seeped into your behavior. Um, I'll, I'll just give one other example along the lines of gender. Um, you know, my wife is an elected official here in Austin. She's on the city council. And I have learned just watching her how many elements of uh, male condescension toward women are still 
uh, active in at least Texas politics. I don't even think the figures doing it right. Sometimes these are the most progressive people actually in their politics. They might be worse than the more conservatives and they don't even realize they're doing it because they're habits of behavior, right? I don't want to condemn any of those people I have in mind now. They're good people, but they need to understand that this is a historical legacy in their behavior. They need to be conscious of it and they need not to beat themselves up, not to cancel themselves, not at all, but to embrace change. That's what working through your history is. History is about studying change over time and embracing change informed by the past. We need to do more of that. Uh, and until we take down statues around the Capitol for Jeff Davis, for a white supremacist, we're not doing that, right? You walk by the Capitol, a huge statue for a secessionist white supremacist. As long as that's standing there, it's telling people we're not willing to do that. Imagine if you walked by the Bundestag. And there was a statue to Hermann Goering, not Hitler, Hermann Goering, right? Wouldn't you say, my gosh, uh, something's wrong here? I think the, yeah, the thing I'll close on, I, I really appreciate your emphasis on the word respect as just a useful, because look, you know, you know how the past two or three years have been. There's been a lot of, have we gone too far? Is this overreaching the actual public mood? And as we're trying to kind of like recenter ourselves as politics seems to calm down a little bit and clearly... The political idea of the moment is stability and the fact that the American people are clearly exhausted, quote unquote, just centering this in respect is a strong organizing principle for actually shooting for, for, for sorting through this. Right. You know, and uh, I'm thinking back to, you know, the debate about should, you know, Thomas Jefferson's statue be in the New York City City Council room. If we're going to do the respect priority thing is like, OK, like as a project, say we want about Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson. Fort Hood, named after, you know, a Confederate, is at a basic level, we could agree there's very little debate there when you reduce it to that core thing. Right, exactly. And I think little things matter. In the world of respect, little things matter. In our interpersonal relations, you remember the small thing someone does that disrespects you. And so let's go the extra mile, especially when it's not politically costly, to show respect. Um, to people. And, and I just to take it back as a historian of the founders, I mean, this is actually part of the whole purpose of the Constitutional Convention, right, is to build a process for respectful, decent debate. Read the Federalist Papers, that's what they're about, right? So I do think restoring that as a standard of behavior actually helps us enormously to get, get further along where we want to go. I think that's an excellent place to end. Um, Jeremy, can you cite out can you cite your, your, your last two books? And then, of course, like the podcast, it's helpful when the actual guest states them themselves rather than me robotically reading them off of a script. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So my, my most uh, recent book, the book that just came out this October, is Civil War by Other Means, uh, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. Uh, my prior book uh, was The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. And the podcast that I do each week uh, with my son and guests uh, is This Is Democracy. Excellent. Jeremy, thank you for joining me on The Realignment. Uh, thank you, Marshall, for having me on. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something, like the show of mission or want to access our subscriber exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.